0: Spencer and I have never actually met in the traditional sense. We have never occupied the same physical space at the same time. That being said, I would still consider John a friend, and I think he would say the same. So how do two people who have never actually met build a friendship? Well, in our case, it started with San Francisco Giants baseball and Twitter. The 2014 World Series featured the San Francisco Giants and the Kansas City Royals. John and I, both Giants fans from different parts of the country, watched that series together, along with some of our other Giants and Royals fans from around the country. As I look back at some of those tweets, we were experiencing the same highs and lows that friends would if they were sitting at the same sports bar together. From there, I joined a Voxer group that John had created called Sports Vox Radio. Uh, This Voxer group is still going strong today, and it talks about sports and all kinds of other things. And it has provided a bond for a group of guys from around the country and even outside of it. As our conversations moved away from sports, I learned more about John's passions and interests, and he about mine. We have learned about each other's families and our beliefs. We have conversed via Voxer and Twitter and other social media outlets, and have also hung out on Google Meet and Zoom. It is truly the definition of the kind of friendships that are possible when the tools at our disposal are used to connect and not just divide. As I narrowed my list of people to include in this year's reading project, I knew I wanted John to be part of that conversation. I appreciate the way John thinks and the passion with which John goes after everything he does. The discussions John and I have had during the past eight-ish years are wide-ranging, which makes John's choice for our February book so apropos. Here is my conversation with John Spencer as we discuss David Epstein's book Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World, But we also spend some time talking about what got us into reading, how we model that importance, the importance of reading for our children, and of course, about sports. Go Giants! Yeah,
1: glad to be here, man.
0: Um, So tell me why, you know, when I asked, uh, when I reached out to people about this, I kind of asked for a book that, you know, kind of uh, was impactful for them or was interesting to them. Why did you recommend uh, Range?
1: Um, For me, it comes from a couple of different places. One is culturally, there's this big idea that we need to have our niche or niche. um, that the whole big idea is find that narrow thing that you're good at and, and be the best at that compared to everybody else. Yeah. Um, and um, I was just struck almost immediately by the the notion that so much of what you become good at is a, a mix of multiple things. And that really, if you kind of like scratch your itch and just try a lot of different things, um, you become the best at something that nobody else can be good at right like yeah like that that becomes a a sort of your thing and um in particular what what stood out to me was kind of in two different zones so just hear hear me out for a moment then we'll, we'll discuss um one was youth sports right his whole thing about all of the different Olympic gold medalists. I mean, Mm -hmm. I saw a thing recently about the quarterbacks who were in the playoffs. They were all multi-sport athletes. Not a single one of them specialized. And um, the feeling like we were letting our sons specialize in a sport late only when they wanted to, but we didn't even have them in competitive sports when they were little. It was just play around in the neighborhood. You know, do a little YMCA here and there, but play every sport, learn every sport, enjoy it. And then if there's something you really want to get into, you do. And that was them. So even though they are single sport right now with baseball, we never did the club sport routine. We never did any of that. And their growth curve has been really high because I think it taught them how to be adaptable. And then the second area was it had me thinking in my own life about how that has been for uh, creativity. So there is just this notion of like uh, to be great at something – means, you know, to be the best in any one field, there's a the 10,000 hour rule or whatever. They always talk about that, which is kind of yeah. a misnomer And yep. then really to get from that 90% to 100% is extreme dedication and certain natural born abilities kick in. But to get to that 80 to 90% at something doesn't take as much effort. And when you become a mix of those, you end up doing well. And so uh, there are people who are amazing authors and writers. I'm a blogger, right? Mm -hmm. They devote hours and hours to their craft. I think I'm a decent writer through a lot of time practicing. There are people that are artists and they are, are amazing illustrators. I sketch. However, being someone who loves writing and loves sketching, I've been able to do sketch videos, right? And Mm -hmm. I I can do keynotes with sketch videos on them and speak to a group. There are people who are amazing speakers. It's not me, right? Like they can get in front of a group and they sound polished and amazing. But when I get up and give a keynote or when I do a sketch video or when I do any of those, being at that 80% zone in three or four different things makes me unique. Yeah, yeah. I think that was the thing that struck out to me was like I saw so much of my own experience in that. And as a former middle school teacher, current college professor, and then as a dad and, and also former coach, right? Yeah. I just like, this is the book that goes so against what the culture tells you right now. Yeah. That's my background into it.
0: Yeah. I remember that. So it made me think a lot about, um, I remember when I, was, when I was like a teenager, I would have had to have been like 14, 15, 16, something like that. And I was on this trip with my grandpa, we were driving to Chicago Uh, And I remember him asking me like, oh, you know, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I remember my answer being like, I want to be the world's expert in something like I didn't know what that something was at the time. (laughs) But my my whole thing was like, I want to be the world's expert at something. Um, And so as I read this, like I thought back to that conversation about wanting to be like wanting to. And and that wouldn't necessarily mean I had to specialize in, in kind of one minute little thing but I remember that conversation and then I thought about it again Like as I, there was this, this quote in the afterword uh, that it was from Duckworth but they're talking about grit in early life and she has this idea that she has a young child who decides today she wants to become a doctor but thinks tomorrow she'd rather build houses a teenager who decides no I don't want to go back i go out for track this year I want to be on journalism before specialization comes sampling and I love that idea yes
1: yes uh, I'm with you I like love that. the idea of sampling. I, that, that, what, that struck me as like the sampling concept was huge. And partly, so partly, part of what I think about is in the sampling section is like just nerding out on educational theory for a moment. Jerome yeah. Bruner talked about the purpose of education is not to learn content. It's to learn how to think in multiple domains, right? Mm-hmm. To learn mm-hmm. how to think like a mathematician, to learn how to think like a historian, to learn how mm-hmm. to, you know, those types of things. And I think that that's where innovation happens, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And some of it is the sampling that goes on where you get to pick and choose like what she describes. But the other piece is, I would argue, if you have learned how to think like a a track runner, mm-hmm. bring that into journalism, that's often where innovation happens, right? So yeah. like, I don't remember if this was in this book or in a different one, but I, I like to think about it like this. Darwin changed geology or Darwin changed biology by being a geologist, right? Like that's Mm -hmm. pretty out there. Or um, economics and decision-making, our our whole understanding of it is completely different because of Kahneman and Tversky, and neither of them were specialists. They Mm -hmm. always pursued whatever interest they had. They were psychologists who won the Nobel Prize in economics, and they applied... This whole new field of behavioral economics, which was itself a, co- a combination of multiple different fields. And yeah. that's where the innovation happened. And the moment they got bored with something, they moved on. So in academia, yeah. they say, specialize in your one zone. Danny Kahneman's not studying decision-making right now. He's de- like doing amazing, groundbreaking research at a place where he should be retired on the difference between uh, being content and being happy. Yeah. That's side i i I think like you learn how to think in those different domains and that's where innovation often happens
0: yeah and it's like these different domains but it's also so they talk about this idea of of match quality he talked about that i mean it's a term economist usually said but that idea that like you find that thing where you know i think ken uh, ken uh, ken robinson would have called it the element right it's that place where passion and and skill kind of intersect but the Mm -hmm. thing i loved about it too is this idea of like I think you just talked about it, but it's it's being able to make connections from these seemingly disparate things, right? So yeah. because just because I study biology doesn't mean i I wouldn't have some worth in helping solve an economic question or an economic problem. Um, yeah. and 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 thinking that you know I was I was talking to a guy uh, just a couple of days ago who was asking about the book because um, he saw I posted about it, and he teaches uh, psychology at the university level. And, and so we were talking about this idea of like, he's like, he was fascinated by it. And I said, yeah, you know, it's so he said, oh, it, it should be like, you know, kids who are taking psychology, I wish they would also take philosophy. And I mm-hmm. said, yeah, I said, but that seems to me to be like the low hanging fruit. Like what it really seems like is not only should you be taking those, those two different courses, but you should almost be like. They should have some cross pollination. Yeah. <laughs> like it's not like I'm taking uh, psychology with you and and philosophy with someone else, and we never commingle. It's like seeing how those two those two things, the things that we'll learn in those two courses, pollinate and help me solve problems, even if I want to go on as a psychologist.
1: Yeah. Well, one of the things that I love that he brought up was this notion that like expertise has a a dark side i i don't remember which chapter this was in but kind of two two zones one is you you become overconfident in the subject that you're yeah the decisions you make in your subject area right that that experience and expertise can 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 create this tunnel vision and mm-hmm. that you overestimate your knowledge of other areas mm-hmm. but you have that range and you're studying multiple different areas you in it creates this like intellectual humility mm-hmm. And curiosity that allows you to not screw up in your decision-making as well.
0: Right. So I think they shared in this book, and I've heard it elsewhere too, but it's that whole like, kind of joke about you know if you're having a heart issue the best time to go into the to you know to go into the doctor is when the cardiologists are all at a conference because there is such this tunnel vision about like oh the way you saw that is with a stent like they might not even know the history but that's that's what they know they've they've done years of this they've studied it they perform these surgeries so it's going to be a stent no matter if you need it or not
1: yes yeah, <laughs> yeah. yes exactly yeah Um, So I, one of the things that I, just nerding out on sports for a moment. So I I love the sports piece that he brought up. And one of the things I thought about was this. So in basketball, because I love basketball.
0: Yeah.
1: I'm a huge Golden State Warriors fan, right? However, I see a, a big difference between Steph Curry, who is a specialist,
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And say LeBron,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right, or or KD. And I was thinking about Jordan, and you know he's known as the greatest all time. Some people mm-hmm. say, LeBron. but look at Jordan, and if you were to give him an A through F in every category—defense, three point shooting, shooting in general, just pick and roll—but um, also assists, rebounds. You would give him probably a B in almost every category, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. One thing he was amazing at, sure. But you put those that like composite score all together, and they become like like amplifiers on on each other. Yeah, football right now, you watch like look at look at the newer quarterbacks, right? We'll just look at Mahomes and Allen for example, just those two. And I get it; Stafford won a Super, Super Bowl, so he's more traditional pocket passer, but. Again, if you look at Mahomes and, and, and Allen, neither of them are people you would give an A in any category. If you look at accuracy, if you look at um, how far they can throw it, if you look at pre-snap reads, if you look at uh, ability to, to run, to throw on the run, um, whatever you say makes up a, a great quarterback, there are better quarterbacks in the league who would be at that very top area. Mm-hmm. But because they're, they are they are... At that like B plus level in almost every area, they've done well.
0: The whole, right. And, right.
1: And, and, and I and then in baseball, I think about it with the Giants, right? Like the yep. Giants, if you say who had the best hitters in baseball, you would have said the Blue Jays, right? Yeah. Because they had three of the best. Yeah. But the Giants filled their team with a team of range where they ended up doing well because they weren't the best defense. That was St. Louis, but Right. they had a place who could hit twenty plus home runs, had really good uh, on base percentage. Um, they might have struck out a decent amount, but you know, in general, it worked. Yeah. Do you,
0: so going on that sports team, I I do love the, you know, the start to the book where they, he kind of gives the tiger story and the Roger story, you know, and and thinks about uh, about tiger woods and thinks about Roger Federer and the way that they both became essentially at the same time, the very best in their sports having come from this at this with very different backgrounds. Um, I wonder if like, where, where is the, is there, the, the, the book obviously makes the case for this idea that, that specialization is not the route to go. Mm-hmm. Can you think of examples where specialization is the right way to go?
1: I don't know. I, I had that same thought. Because, that because you know, Tiger Woods had obviously worked out for him. Or, you know, it didn't work out well for the chess people that he brought up, right? Right. The, the chess family. But then yeah. it did work out for, say, Bobby Fischer. You know, like like there are these stories... Uh, and I think, I don't know, I feel like it has to be some level of bizarre talent <laughs> mixed with just very nerdy, obsessive interest in, in one thing. Like, one of the yeah. things I'm struck by is a lot of the people who were in that zone, that's all they ever wanted to be. And maybe that's okay. Like, I'm going to throw it back to you because I'm going to think about this a little bit. When do you think it is best to be the specialist?
0: Yeah, so so to me, it feels like it has to be something that is a little more, uh, that that is organic, right? Or that is authentic to that person. Like I would never, there, the one interesting, interesting thing about the Federer story is there was this little part where they talked about when he really did, like in his teenage years, start to specialize in tennis. His parents kind of like pulled him back from that a little bit and said, oh, we're not gonna, you know, we're not gonna completely specialize in this. So if there were something where, And I think this is really hard because when, when kids are young, you know, if they're seven and they say they're really interested in dance, Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, do they really know? Like if if we go full force into that, then if I say, okay, you love dance, we're going to go full force into dance because that's what, that's what they say they want to do. Like, Mm -hmm. do I, should we still, like, I still think we should be providing these like ample opportunities to dabble and to, and to try other things and see those Mm -hmm. things. But it's like, is if it becomes this organic thing, and that's where honestly the book talks about, like it happens later in life, you know? I mean, I, it gives this story about like Van Gogh, for instance, who, you know, had all these failures and, and was, you know, wasn't a good, told he wasn't a good artist and then he was in construction and he worked at a bookshop and he did all these things. And then he found his like niche by just continuing to dabble and then became a specialist, you know what I mean? Like became like, oh, this is my thing. So I don't know. Like, I, I think that once you get there, I don't know that we've forced people to dabble once they've found their thing. But I don't know how you, especially with kids, how you ever get to a point where you're like, okay, you know what you want as a 10-year-old. <laughs> you know, like you've had enough life experiences to know what you, you really want to do as a 13-year-old. I'm not sure when that time is.
1: Yeah, I mean, I love from a, from like a school pedagogy side, I think we do that already well in education- by saying you're going to take multiple classes, yeah. get exposure to a lot, and then we'll also do something like Genius Hour, right, where you get a passion project you, you get to do, and then we're going to have electives, you know, and you're going to get yeah. a chance to... Um, the problem I see is, like, the fear of you didn't pick, you didn't pick, you didn't pick. And I, I see this, like I said, I see it in youth sports mm-hmm. with you know, parents who who essentially... Zone in on baseball, soccer, whatever it may be. I, you know, in, I'm talking fifth grade. Like yeah. a lot of them are, it's young. And I see it in high school, college, where being undeclared as a major is is this big problem. Like my my kids, yeah. Why not? You know, I I told myself that I was going to do college in five years, and to make it cheaper, I would do community college first, and I would mess around like I would go take any class that interested me in community college so I did two years there yeah. and I um I'm telling you like I just was like I, I want to find out how people learn I want to study psychology I want to mm-hmm. do philosophy I want to learn this like i meteorology like I just wanted everything and um because it was so cheap I could right just mm-hmm. mm-hmm. so cheap people were scared for me I mean, I mean, parents, neighbors, their friends. It's like John. He's is he going to be okay? Like, because I was an honor student. I was the kid who should have gone, picked a major, gone into business or something. Yeah, taken that route, and I didn't.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. You'll like this. My so I have a daughter who's a senior right now. So we're we're going through that process of choosing colleges, and, and I think there's a really interesting thing here. When she was in like second grade. She decided, you know, at the time she wanted to be a marine biologist like that was that was her thing. Now, she was interested in it. She was learning about it. And she just wrote this essay for like a scholarship recently where she was talking about like when I was in second grade and third grade and talking about wanting, wanting to be a marine biologist. Everybody to a person said, oh, that's amazing. You'd be you know, you'd learn so much and you get to go do all these things and, you know, you should follow your dreams. And, you know, if that's what you're interested in, you should do it. And now she's, you know, she's a senior and she's visiting colleges and she's trying to figure out where to go. And it's like all she hears now is, oh, you know, you'd have to go away and it's going to cost a lot of money. And, um, you know, it doesn't pay very much. And, you know, so she's like all this time when I'm in elementary school and kind of growing up, people are like, yeah, follow your dreams, do what makes you happy. And now they're kind of like, well, wait a second here. You know, if we're really thinking about it, you know, can you afford to go out of state? Can you afford to, you know, have this job that maybe doesn't doesn't pay you as much as you want? And I just think it's this really interesting thing. So, like, that's been something, again, she's been interested in for 10 years now. I mean, it's not like it's a new thing. And, and she's finding this uh, this kind of like roadblock to like, oh, like what's OK to to say is great for, a, a you know, an eight year old is not OK for an 18 year old.
1: Oh, I love it. That's such a great point. It's, it's just it's just weird. Like it's
0: you know as we kind of you know as a family struggle through this, where to go to college and what makes the most sense. Um, you know, it's it's not always about following your dreams. Like there are all of these other factors that come into play when when it comes kind of comes down to brass tacks.
1: One of the things I'm struck by though, and and this this is something that again that it's it's part of why I love this this book range is. we really are in a world where things are heavily specialized. Yeah. And it is counterintuitive when we think about like, what will kids need to be to be specialists that they'll have to be generalists, right? That that, yeah. that it will be that mix of those things. And, and one of the things I thought about was, uh, and this is, I, I'm breaking the rules of this podcast. I'm sure by saying this. Um, in, in, uh, in our book, empower one of the things that I brought up when I wrote that chapter was this notion that like for years we were taught a formula you you do well at school you graduate from college and you climb the corporate ladder and that formula was never available to all people if you were a a gender minority a member of the LGBT plus population if you were um, a person of color there were huge systemic barriers right college to career to all of those but that was the formula you were taught and then I, I bring up how in a world that's unpredictable which is our current world we've seen this in the last couple of years the latter is now a maze yeah and it seemed that if the latter is now a maze and it's unpredictable then having that range becomes important to navigating that maze yeah that this yeah. experience you have here takes you into this area here that takes you into this area here and that it would seem that rain, the, the, the notion of, of a mindset of range, which I know he never defines it as a mindset, but but an approach that is range-based makes you adaptable and flexible. Yeah. And I think that's,
0: you know, it's the thing. If it, if it is a maze, the hard part now is figuring out, like, how do we know when to stop going this way and start going that way, right? I think in the book, they actually, they was just looking for it. They had, a, they had a little quote in there that says, preserving or persevering through difficulty is a competitive advantage for any traveler on a long road. But he suggests that knowing when to quit is such a big strategic advantage that every single person before undertaking an endeavor should enumerate conditions under which they should quit. Like that idea where it, it doesn't become... This like failure that's going to send you down a path that you know it's kind of like going to community college and not going to university right away with a major. It's like when do I know to make that decision and not make that decision?
1: Yeah. What so a little one of the things that stuck out to me, like taking this back to school for a second. So again, some of it thinks is, is the goal of what we're going for: the maze, the ability to be adaptable. But there was one one piece uh, in in this book where he he talked about this notion that um, retrieval is all about the journey, which Cornell and and the team wrote about um, in, in the overall experiments. Um, um, It was all about this idea of um, deliberate practice, making mistakes Mm -hmm. and having space in between that. Right. You know, it was in the, uh, learning fast and slow chapter, which was one of my favorites. Yeah. Um, it, it was at the same time that I was reading the, the newest, uh, Adam Grant book, I think where he talks about, uh, math teachers giving students too many hints, right? Yeah. Saying, yep. uh, so it's, it's this idea of productive struggle, but, um, this this uh, paragraph in particular really stood out to me. If that eighth grade classroom followed a typical academic plan over the course of the year, it is precisely the opposite of what science recommends for durable learning. One top topic was probably confined to one week and another to the next. Like yeah. a lot of professional development efforts, each particular concept or skill gets a short period of intense focus and then on to the next thing never to return. That structure makes intuitive sense, but it forgoes another important, desirable difficulty: spacing or distributed practice. Yeah, what it sounds like, leaving time between practice sessions for the same material. Yeah, and I just it that got me thinking about the need for space for interdisciplinary learning. Again, being a fan of project-based learning, you're it, yeah, it's it all about that space piece. But yeah. it requires this whole range concept, if that's true, requires a big rethink of the way that we do the curriculum design. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I totally agree. Um, and it seems like, you know, you look at that and you look at other, you know, other theories that have come up and other ideas that people have shared. It seems like it's almost impossible to make that happen in any, with any sort of scale, right? (laughs) Like, you know, it's, it's one of those things where you can certainly like some crazy person can try it and they can, you know, they'll, they'll write a great book about it and it'll happen in that classroom. It's like, how do you do that with any sort of scale at all, where it will have an impact beyond, you know, your immediate surrounding area.
1: What, what, what I'm curious for you though. So just sitting in there, this area for a moment, what would that look like for say, If there's a little more flexibility in a self-contained classroom. So let's say a fifth grade teacher is teaching all subjects. Yeah. They typically have a curriculum guide that walks them. In some cases, day by day, often week by week, often one isolated idea at a time. If this is true that you have to have spacing and deliberate practice and you have to have one thing popping in and bringing back another, what would that actually look like?
0: Yeah. So, I, you know, the specifics of it, I don't know. Like, I'm trying to think through that as you're asking the question. But the one thing I know is it's much, much harder. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's this idea that, uh, one, I think it looks like there is much more kind of interdisciplinary planning. Right. Yeah. So there isn't there aren't these distinct compartments that you're working through. So whether that's in an elementary classroom where I have one teacher doing all of that or whether that's in a secondary setting where I'm moving, uh, you know, literally moving uh, from one place to the next, you know, I think there, there has to be more intentional, like cross-pollination again. Like there has to be more intentional planning around what is that going to look like to ensure that not only do we have that space and not only are we coming back to these things, but we're also not uh, like unintentionally um, specializing kids. <laughs> like we're not unintentionally through our curriculum design. We're not unintentionally like saying, here are the very specific things that we're going to learn and that you're going to be engaged with. Um, and that becomes more difficult because then it doesn't become the same for everybody. Um, and so I think that's where it gets really hard and, and maybe it's not replicable. You know what I mean? Like there, there it might be something where you look at it and say, boy, this just isn't replica. You can't replicate this for everybody.
1: Yeah. That's a great. I mean, what one of the one of the things I thought about in that area was, for some reason, math has gotten the uh, gotten the 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 reputation of being linear, which it's not, for sure, and that it's has to be done step by step systematically. Yeah, and I watch kids feel like they're behind. mm Hmm therefore increasing in their anxiety. And because they think everything has to build on the day before, there's a sense of like progression and forgetting, progression and forgetting, right? Yeah. And I contrast that to what I see as a observer of a lot of classrooms. Like, you know, when I go in and watch students teach and stuff like that, and, you yep. know, as a professor, mm-hmm. um, I contrast that to language arts. Hmm. They might have a curriculum map, and some of them teach this way. They they're like it's narrative this week. It's the and and, mm-hmm. and but often what I see is small writing samples that are a personal reflection, and then and then an, a short story that they write right now for a warm up. And even if the big thing is persuasive writing, they're they're doing an informational expository piece, and that's on the writing side. And then our reading, mm-hmm. they're doing, you know, twenty five minutes a day of silent reading. And they're practicing it all, right? Decoding, um, you know, comprehension, critical thinking, making inferences, clarifying questions as they read. Mm -hmm. And so there's a sense that even if they, some of them do feel like they're behind and there is a little bit of the like fear about fluency and, oh, my kid's only at this reading level. But there's a little bit of a like sense that um, it just seems much more scattered in a beautiful way. Whereas math, isn't. And I wonder if we do a disservice to students by treating something like math that particular way. Like, I think that I wonder if there's a lack of range in math.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. I think it would take a lot to unravel all that has been done to math education over the years. Yeah, right. Um, You know, even even if uh, I I think about people that I'm able to work with here, um you know some folks who have some really great like uh mathematical ideas about how do you teach math and and how do you do this in a way that is is not only about process but is also about this idea of like number sense and understanding why numbers are important and the way that they relate to each other um but changing and again unraveling might be the best word for it, uh, unraveling the way that has been taught for years is uh is is a really daunting task um mm-hmm. because it becomes part of who people are <laughs>
1: Well, I, I, it lasts. I mean, I wonder if, like being a little less critical of the system, I wonder if that's where electives have done a really good job. And and for okay. example, I think that engineering courses and STEM courses at the high school level mm-hmm. have done often a really good job giving students the, the, the notion of a wicked problem, right? Sure. Mm-hmm. I don't know if math classes do that necessarily. I don't know if they're getting that in, say, pre-calc, but they're getting it in an engineering class. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, I, I remember when, when I taught reading intervention and I said, the way we're going to teach reading and writing intervention is I'm going to turn the, this class from being called reading intervention into being called journalism. Yeah. <laughs> right? a yeah, good point. They're yeah. going to learn all of the skills of informational reading because the focus was supposed to be on yeah. informational reading, and they're going to learn all of those skills at once. In 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 a and again, I would argue that's what journalism gives you those wicked problems, right? It gives you the no easy answer. You want information literacy, you're going to have to wrestle with it as you actually form a piece of your own, and um, and so I wonder if, if students are getting that a little bit in some of those elective classes. But maybe some of those mindsets and, and approaches that we see in electives need to be brought into the core areas, yeah. out of fear of something being untaught or, or or forgotten or or you know, yeah. I think getting a little bit away from the testing piece,
0: yeah. You know it takes no convincing on my part that journalism is maybe the most important course that a kid can <laughs> take. So you know there's no you know there's no disagreement on my part there. <laughs> we
1: both have that journalism. I forgot that we both have that background. That's right.
0: Yeah. I would uh, I would be remiss John if I didn't ask. You know one of the when I when I tried to narrow this down to 12 people to do this with this year, um, you know one of the reasons that I I wanted to ask you uh, there's kind of a number of reasons but One, I think there's this really interesting um, way that people connect now Um, and, you know, our connection starting with, you know, Giants baseball uh, and and kind of moving into lots of other conversations and things over the years, even though we've never actually met in person. Um, I think there's this really interesting thing about the way relationships are built now and and fostered and, and grown. And then the other thing is I, I really do appreciate it, you, the way that you think. Um, I, I like hearing you. Uh, even if even if a box does come through that's five or six minutes, I enjoy it typically uh, <laughs> because I like the way you think. So i really miss if I didn't ask. Like part of this is really about like getting to the, the core of, of the understanding of why people still read uh, and why they think books are important. Did, were you a reader as like a kid? Were you a, an avid reader as a kid?
1: Yeah, yes I was, but also like uh, this can be a little bit of a story. You just bear with me for a second. I had a mom who never stressed about reading levels, right? So graphic novels, comic books, l- low early readers were fine. And so I was behind in k one k- 12 and and third from K to three and they were worried about me a little bit. And, um, you know, there were some times where I was, like, below grade level or whatever. Mm-hmm. And she just didn't stress. She's just like, we're going to read you. You're going to read out loud. You're going to read in your head. Once you start reading in your head, do it that way. And mm-hmm. uh, and so I, we we weren't, like, reading was never rewarded. It was never celebrated necessarily. It was all about our family loved ideas and stories mm-hmm. and reading. Another way to get there so I didn't have parents that were like anti-tv or anything like we watch tv we listen it's just like consuming media is consuming media and that's those are all different ways that you that you get information and, and stuff so it was celebrated but it was like reading in our house was like breathing it's just like there's always magazines in the bathroom which is kind yeah of yeah like, um, there's always a newspaper uh, on the kitchen table there's always books lying around and and coffee table books and this is just always around so if you had told me you know asked me as a kid are you into reading I would have said no I'm into baseball and baseball stadiums and I like like drawing my own stadiums and I'm into this dinosaurs I never would have said I loved reading and then it kicked in where I started reading higher level books in fourth grade and I went from like um, I don't know Amelia Bedelia to Mm -hmm. Michael Crichton and there was Mm -hmm. just Switch. And I suddenly was into like Andromeda Strain and Sphere and these Michael Crichton books. And so I started... But again, I would have said I love science fiction, but it, mm-hmm. but, I, but I just... Reading was alleviating boredom. It was like if there was nothing good on TV to watch, then read a book. If a yeah. video game is boring, then read a book. If, if you're in a car, read a book. So it's always just been in the background. So I, I, that's where I came from as a kid. One year... They did uh, reading prizes where you get pizza, dough. you know, you get pizza coupon if you win. And I read so many books and my mom would not let us join the competition. And I, I would have won. I mean, I read a lot. I was so mad. And then when it was time to do the awards, she pulled us out of school for that second half of the day when we were going to do the awards. And she took us out to pizza instead and then took us to a bookstore and let us pick out a book. And we always went to the library. We never had a lot of money to go to the bookstore. So I went to the bookstore yeah. and got a book, a brand new, because all of our books were always used, Goodwill, right? <laughs> yeah. and, and I got a new book. And I remember, you know, what she said, which stuck with me forever is like, reading is rewarding when there's no reward for reading. Yeah, know? nice. And um, so I've always felt like if you intrinsically love reading, it's what you do. So now as an adult, I, I I don't have social media on my phone. I do, I do have Voxer, which you know. <laughs> I, I have Kindle, right? And that's my distraction yeah. thing. I just go to Kindle and I have it open. Um, I have a book by by my bedside table and I read before I go to bed. I um, love audiobooks. And so every time mm-hmm. I work out or I do the dishes or whatever, I'm listening to audiobooks. Mm-hmm. So I end up reading a lot. Again, like... But it's just kind of in the background.
0: Yeah. Do, yeah. do you do you find yourself doing the same thing with your kids?
1: Yeah, you know, they're not as avid readers as I am. Yeah. I mean, we have all of this stuff, the books and, and everything. They are um they're more the like obsessive readers, like they get yeah. into a series and then read ever like so both of my boys read the Harry Potter books and like plowed through them and read everyone or, or fable Haven or um, my daughter right now is like that with um, the Percy Jackson series, you know, sure. um, they don't get excited about nonfiction yeah. yet. But I, I, like, I don't think I've read loved my first nonfiction book until college. It was, it was probably like a, um, a history book. And then from there, got into, you know, behavioral economics and yeah. like, I think the first book I read for fun for fun that was nonfiction was probably this book, uh, predictably irrational, which is like that's be- that's when I got into behavioral economics. And, okay. um, so I kind of think some of its age, I think at a younger age, we, we don't, we just don't do a great job. Giving students <laughs> really good nonfiction books to read. Sure. Um, and I don't know how to fix that.
0: Yeah. I've told the story a lot. I mean, I, as a kid, I did not read books. I mean, I just just didn't, uh, it wasn't something, you know, I remember my, my mom certainly read to me when I was young and all those things, but it wasn't something that was happening at my house. I was an avid reader of newspapers and magazines. I mean, I always had the USA today and I always was reading sports illustrated, mostly sports stuff. Um, but I was constantly reading that kind of thing, but didn't really read a book. Like I remember, I think the first book I remember reading was mm-hmm. uh like the great gatsby in high school <laughs> so i mean it wasn't like i was reading i wasn't reading books and and i you know I, I feel like there was almost like as i got older there was almost like this little bit of i don't know like shame that i hadn't done those things really i was feeling this little bit of like you know i consider myself I mean, i am not a genius name but i consider myself a pretty smart person and i, I feel like i'm pretty informed Uh, and I felt like, well, obviously a smart person would be reading books. Like like there's no way that I shouldn't be reading books. And that kind of is, you know, it kind of changed for me when I got married and my wife read all the
1: time. And, uh, I kind of decided, man, I I probably need to read some books. I love it. So interesting. I mean, what's your ratio of fiction and nonfiction?
0: I'm much heavier on the nonfiction. I have to force myself to read fiction. Me too. Um,
1: Uh I think it's like just loving ideas. It's part of why I wish my my kids would would read some nonfiction because they, they all love podcasts. Yeah. And so it's yeah. like, if, if you enjoyed this 99% Invisible episode, you might like the 99% <laughs> book that I have right there. <laughs> like, and, and that's my thing. I mean, I, I really, I have to be really
0: intentional about reading some nonfiction um, and making sure that I'm, uh, that I'm doing that. And again, only because I think it's, it's easier to get lost in, in character, um, with a fiction book, you know, unless it's a really well-written nonfiction book that, that does a great job of like storytelling along with, um, which I think this one did a pretty good job of that. Honestly, I think he does a really good job of telling stories. Um,
1: I I gotta say like right there, that's why I enjoy, like I, I will read any Michael Lewis book. I'm like, I don't care about day trading. (laughs) <laughs> I, don't care about, like, I don't like, I don't care about that topic. Like if he, if he's like, well, we're, I'm going to, I wrote this amazing book on like uh, the history of soap. I'd be like, I, I'm on board. What is my, yeah. <laughs> so, I, soap uh, I'm currently almost done with uh, listening to
0: uh, the splendid and the vile, the Eric Larson book, um, which I love. It, his is great. And I love his other books. So there are things that I wouldn't normally have read about, but um, are, are super fantastic. Uh, you know, Devil in the White City, Beast in the Garden—I think is what the other one's called—fantastic books. But um, because we have this connection over sports, too, so I'm curious. Do you have a favorite sports book, or a favorite few sports books you can remember? I'll give you a second to think. I'll give you a couple that I was thinking about earlier, just to give you a minute to think about it. So, I loved um, the Legends Club, which is about Shostakovich, Valvano, and Dean Smith uh, about the time they were all kind of coaching together. Uh, it's called the Legends club, which is really, really great. Uh, a couple of years ago, I read a book by Doris Kearns Goodwin called wait till next year, uh, which is all about the Brooklyn Dodgers and her love of the Brooklyn Dodgers, which was, which was a really, uh, a really good, easy read, but I love Doris Kearns Goodwin and I love baseball. And then the last one was one I read this long, long time ago. It's called final rounds. And it was this this nonfiction book about this guy who goes on this golf trip with his dad who is dying Uh, and they go visit all these golf courses. They always wanted to play together. Uh, And it's it's this story of just kind of like friendship and being a father and a son. Uh, And it was really, really great. So those are a few of mine. I'm sure there are others that I've read, but uh, I'm always looking for good. I'm always looking for good sports sports books
1: yeah I'm trying to remember the name of a there's a there was a good one that I read, and i i'm I'm trying to find it. so bear with me for a second but this, this is my, my latest favorite sports book um and and you can get it in oh. not I don't know this one is' called ballparks and oh, it's sweet like a history of ballparks by city uh-huh. and um, and so it kind of walks you through the different zones it's 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 highly pictured. You know, there's a lot of pictures. Yeah, I've always, ever since I was a kid, nerded out on, like, yeah, baseball stadiums. I just yeah. love, you know, and um, one of the things that I love about this book is yes. it tells the deeper story about all all of these. You know, the decision makers, why it was done a certain way, why field dimensions are a certain way with the land and stuff, mm-hmm. but also kind of the politics of different things, and it includes things like, um the the different uh, Negro League stadiums, right? Yeah. Which, mm-hmm. um, which I think is really powerful, and um, and I, I don't know. It's, it just it it tells a I don't know. It's a fascinating book that I just I devoured it. Yeah. Um, so Eric Enders is is the name. Um, okay. And uh, yeah, it, it's it's one of my favorite sports related books. Awesome. Uh, So on this topic of range, yeah, did it have you thinking at all about range in terms of what you read? Yeah, it
0: did, Um, and and honestly, like I, I was kind of relating it to to um, uh, I was recently looking back uh, a couple years ago. We did the Gallup Strengths Finder stuff here, and we had some coaching around that with somebody from Gallup, and it was really interesting. And one of mine, one of my top three was was ideation. And it was really about this idea of like being interested in lots and lots of topics and then trying mm-hmm. to make connections between those topics. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I, I do find that, like, I try to read, I read a book earlier this year that was just about trees, like about the way that trees communicate with each other. And cause I might've read that. It was, uh, I can't remember what the name it was now. Um, Oh, look, I have my phone on me. Um, and so, so yeah, like I find myself, I think intentionally, and maybe it was like almost subconsciously, I don't even know if I was doing it intentionally, intentionally, to be honest, but like trying to read lots of different things. Mm-hmm. And I think it's partly to like the people in my house, my wife and daughters might accuse me of being a know-it-all, mm-hmm. um. And I just tell them I like knowing things like it's one of those things where I like to be able to kind of have even if it's not a deep understanding, which is the point of the book, <laughs> like even if it's not this super deep understanding, like I like having a a a broad base of knowledge that I can that I can maybe call on when needed. So I absolutely thought about what I read uh, as I was reading this and I think it, it informed it, maybe it put a, a name to it. Right. <laughs> it
1: put a name to this idea of range. uh, One of the things I love there too is when you're reading multiple books at once in different areas, the the books have a conversation with each other or something, you know? And, and like, I was reading recently um, this book on like ancient history, called the dawn of everything. And I loved it. And as I was reading it, I was also reading a book that was in a completely different domain about the, the, the purpose and value of play. And as I read about that play and curiosity, and then I read about like the, the history of, of agriculture came from play farming. I'm thinking yeah. about those two. It, it fits together. You know, it's suddenly it's, it's there or reading again about I'm a lot of what I read skews for behavioral economics. I just love it. Yeah. And so reading about behavioral economics on one, one hand, while reading um, uh, Anna Konakova's book, Mastermind.
0: Oh, yeah, um, yeah, I've
1: never uh, read it, but it's liar, on my list. Or liar, poker or whatever, the, 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 mm-hmm. the poker one. That she had. And, um, and, and the, that interaction between them, you know, or, mm-hmm. or I'm reading a book that's about like the power of mathematics. And as I read that, and, and it's like these things start kind of cross-pollinating and everything. And I think that's a lot of why this book resonated so much. Was, I couldn't. I couldn't agree more with that. You know, it, it it's and being in academia, there's a huge pressure toward being the specialist, uh, toward reading all every journal article in your subject area, and and, and your subject area is this narrow. By the way, yeah. you know, it's. Not, I'm not an education guy. I'm a project-based learning, intrinsic motivation, self efficacy and yeah. professional development in project-based learning. That's my narrow research focus, which I right. I just be boring yeah and there are two things that because i think you're right i i love the idea of, of
0: ideas cross pollinating. two things that kind of came to mind for me one it also happens with with different kinds of media so like i remember even though they are not totally different topics i was reading the alexander hamilton book as oh. i was listening to the music um and being able to identify like these parts of the of the book mm-hmm. and then see where they are mixed in um to the, to the storytelling and the music in Hamilton was, an experience that I I tell everybody, if you're ever going to read the book, read the book and have the, you know, have it on your phone or whatever. So you can go to it and listen right away because there are so many connections. And then the other thing I did is I once, I had a, um, I read a, I read cosmos, um, And there's, there's this really great, um, idea in there where they're talking about imagination and skepticism, uh, these two Mm -hmm. ideas and how those two ideas kind of like are used to make the best things happen. And so I remember this one time I wrote, so James Clear, who, uh, who wrote the book atomic habits Uh, he was starting a podcast at some point and he was looking for someone to like be the producer of this podcast and write it and do some of the editing and so i thought what the heck i'm gonna i'm gonna apply for this just because it sounds fun um and one of the things you had to do was put together like an episode essentially like a short a short piece and so like i went and tried i was i pulled all these and i wanted to then make it kind of like its own podcast but i haven't done it yet it's like taking these two ideas which seem totally separate totally different and showing the connection of they had so like in this little episode i had you know pieces from cosmos and i had a a, um there's a um there's a speech that winston churchill gave gave at harrow school uh where he talks about this idea that the only thing that's going to save them is imagination um and so like took these ideas of imagination and skepticism and made this one thing and so i think you only get that though when you when you maybe have this idea of range in the back of your head, or you're reading these lots of different things. So I'm totally with you. I start seeing these ideas coming together that don't feel like they should, they should go together, but they totally do.
1: Well, and in a world of algorithms, which is a a key idea in this is the book too, that, that, that specializes and narrows it right. Which, which is the case. Um, we also see this, this, this thing of echo chambers and, and, um, you know, narrow topics that, that yeah. happen, the downside of personalization, right? We yep. see it in, in, in political science. We, you and I have talked before about um, the, the whole notion of, uh, you know, people getting narrower and narrower in their political views and in their yep. ideas. And um, I just forgot the, the continuum that moves back and forth. Uh, Overton's window, right? So oh, yeah, the Overton shifts yeah, yeah. back and forth based mm-hmm. on that one of the things that I love is this notion of choosing deliberately to go with a range, not by your passions and interests, but by some external thing. Right. And so one of the things I think about is like, uh, you're doing this right now with this podcast project, you're getting recommendations from other people and Mm -hmm. reading outside of what you chose. Right. Mm -hmm. Or, um, uh, you know, I, I know you're not a particularly uh, you know, religious person, but it's it's the notion of a liturgy that forces you, you're going to do this at this time of year, regardless sure. of where you're at. Or I did a project where I I just read, I, I color code my bookshelves, and it's like rainbow order, and then from black to white to whatever. And I just said, I'm going to read each book one after the next on the bookshelf. And so I, and because I read two books at once, right? So I'm yep. reading two books that that could not have been more different from each other. One was Bell Hooks. The other was Tim Brown, Change by Design, right? So Bell Hooks writing about the purpose of love and empathy and and action and and has this critical lens that she offers. And then Tim Brown, who has this very corporate you know, creativity is going to the world design thinking. And I would never have chosen to read those two books together. Yeah. But that gave me a very necessary critique of design thinking, which I'm passionate about, right? Yeah. yeah,
0: And that's, and that honestly is, is the, you know, as you know, you just mentioned is the purpose of this kind of little personal project for me is just to see what makes people tick and to see why they read, you know, and I tried really hard. I mean, it's not perfect, but I tried really hard to get like, a range of people who I know really well to ones I don't know super well. I tried to get a range of ages and genders and, you know, um, you know, uh, you know, tried to get people of different backgrounds and it, it was hard, um, you know, because it's, it's just not easy to do that. Try to get people from, from the United States and outside the United States. Uh, and so I'm really excited for that. I mean, I've got, um, I've got a couple coming up that I think are are just, are going to be really fun. So, um, I do appreciate it because it 's one I enjoy the conversation too like it 's it 's also my idea of like doing like i 'm not in a book club any book clubs this is like my own little mini book club about twelve different books
1: <laughs> you know what its it 's a book club that guarantees where you 've guaranteed everyone read the book
0: that 's right that 's perfect yeah. i'd find one person and say hey what 's a book you love and why does it matter to you and and then we uh and then we talked about it so it 's going to be fun, and this one was fun, and the one with my wife was fun and uh Next month I have a, have a young lady, uh, her name's Emma Preston and she's the daughter of a, of a friend of ours. Uh, and she was always just this, this really fascinating, unique young lady who, who was driven and who was smart, but also participated in lots of things and was, was kind of like, you know, grown beyond her years, even when she was, when she was younger. Um, and so I'm, I'm really looking forward to that one in March, um, and then I have you and, Mac, you and Macintosh in Scotland, uh, from Scotland in uh, April. So it's going to be fun too.
1: Awesome. Um, what, next week, or next month, I should say. What, what book are you reading next month? Uh, it's called It's called something Plow the Bones
0: of the Dead. Plowing the Bones of the Dead, it's a fiction book. Okay. Olga Takarsic, I think, is the, is the author. Um, I had my phone, I would look, I can't remember the name. It, it, has, it has the words plow and bones and dead in it. Okay. It should be easy to find. But it, it it I just got it yesterday. Um got it from the bookstore, so I'm going to I'm going to go ahead and, and start that one soon. So, should be fun.
1: That's awesome. Yeah. Well, John, thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. I'm I, glad on, I, it, it was just fun to connect and hang out and talk about a book. So,
0: well, and you know, if you want to continue doing it at some point, I am happy to get on and talk about a book anytime. Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well thanks, John. Have a good rest
1: of your day. Yeah, you too. remember right, that.